nothing about your logical capacity is designed to help you seek truth. Truth is handy if it helps you survive. Lens one for the human brain, survival, food, water, safety, shelter. Lens two, social. Social is survival for us. And a lot of the mysteries we see about human beliefs and behavior are much less mysterious if we use those lenses. Welcome to Knowing and Believing, the podcast where we dive a little bit deeper into what we know and what we believe in. Today is a pretty interesting podcast for me because I was able to sit down with Science Mike. And he's someone for me who's been very formative in helping me intellectualize my faith and belief structures, but also leaves the door open for actually believing things that you cannot materially prove and why that's important. I was very lucky to get some time with him and uh, check it out. Um, the one critique I've had in my podcast is I need to shut up more. So <laughs> I'm going to try and uh, talk less. I've had that critique as well yeah. on mine. So I got three softball questions for you okay, and uh, nine hardball questions. And any of them you can push pass on or just say, you know, that's just not appropriate for us to talk about, man, whatever. I don't know that I've ever heard you say something's not appropriate to talk about, though. So No, I can't imagine what that would be. Been fairly, <laughs> been fairly brave that way. <laughs> I mean, that's first time trying that. That's interesting. Peach bear is quite good. It's one of my I'm, faves. I'm a coconut guy. Oh, I love coconut. the coconut too. My wife hates coconut. What's good is the coconut with an, a little bit of fresh lime in it is actually really good. Oh, yeah. Um, so first softball question. Okay. Which you might not, this might be one you're not ready to talk about. So can you tell us uh, what the new book's about? And if so, how's it coming? Yes, the book, uh, the title just got finalized and it is You're a Miracle and a pain in your ass that's oh, the title i like the it. the subtitle is understanding the hidden forces that make you you so that'll come out in march of 2020 will you be reading it to me like you did your last book yes i'll definitely do the audiobook again although Great. that is a pain it's when i learned i can't say unfathomable although i've gotten better at it <laughs> there's things i can write that i can't say uh so yeah that book is kind of uh a look into Paul's dilemma. I don't understand myself. I do th what I abhor and I don't do what I think is right. You know that he writes oh, yeah, it yeah. So it's looking at that issue that kind of underpins all the great faith traditions. The, the mystery of like why we can want to do one thing and then do something else. And then exploring that through behavioral economics and cognitive psychology and interpersonal neurobiology and uh, a lot of um, this is probably the most raw vulnerable open I've been about my life and my experiences ever hmm. uh, it goes into a lot of stories and perspectives from uh, the listeners and community that have assembled around Ask Science Mike and the Liturgist podcast and it's, uh, it's primarily a book that is about solidarity and understanding. But there are things in there you can use to make changes in your life if you so desire. But my main goal is that someone would read this book and love and appreciate themselves more. That's what I want someone to get from. You're a miracle and a pain in your ass. <laughs> 
How's uh, I would imagine you're pulling from your own personal experience in that. And I've found personally that when dissecting my own process of thinking, believing, doing, acting, I've we'll talk less about me. I'm going to take the advice of other people. <laughs> I, I like hearing uh, you talk. Uh, yeah. Um, I know I pull from my own experience, emotions, like the, the idea of knowledge and uh, emotions. Yeah. Uh, I can learn things and be comfortable with them pretty quick, but then my emotions catch up to me like six months later mm -hmm. and it becomes really difficult and I have to step away from things for a while. How's that emotional journey been for you, which I imagine you're diving very deeply into to create this book? Yeah, this book messed my life up in a big way. I guess I had, I had all the information that I was putting in the book from day one. Um, the problem is living my life in accordance with the things I've learned. I guess kickstarted a period of growth for me, but it's been really difficult growth. New things or, or older things? Older things, but like really putting them into practice. So the older things. Yeah. Things I already right. knew, but I got, I was challenged by a few friends women and women of color um, that I was so ready and open to learn from people and the pages of books and the writings of blog posts, but mm. so reticent to engage in relationship with other people. That's very true of me. Mm. Um, and exploring why that is, um, you know, my first book, Finding God in the Waves, came after a period of, of, of years of pretty significant life upheaval. Mm. And I was so excited to be in a place that I felt good again. Right. And I was reticent to kind of tip that apple cart uh, of the post-Finding God in the Waves place I was in. But you have to grow. You have to change. You have to face the things that are inside yourself. And for someone who makes their living like trying to inspire other people to more open and honest living by example, I'd, I'd felt like a hypocrite if I didn't kind of do the work and it wasn't really, I didn't have a choice anyway. Um, orienting my life in a way that is open and vulnerable and supportive, ironically made my body and my feelings feel safe enough to start exhibiting symptoms of uh, trauma and PTSD and things that I'd really kept hmm. buried before. And so the arc of this book is I started knowing everything I was going to talk about, but the process of writing it down and exploring it opened up some things I didn't know were there. And so uh, in, in a very big way, the book is about me learning in my heart and in my body the information I started out with day one writing that book. Huh. That's, that's, um, I, I find that it, to a large degree mirrors my own experience that I haven't fully been able to articulate, but yeah, the knowledge came and it's like, Oh, okay. I step out of this with this knowledge, but yeah. then somewhere down the road, you just like, for me, I was, um, the first 10 years of my marriage uh, were 
very, I was very, very self-centered and, mm. and, uh, had a lot of learning to do. And, and we've, we've come out of that and grown and, and have become better out of it. And I've become a lot better person from a lot of the critique of all of my friends and wife and family and everything else, which is a very, very difficult process. Um, but I found I had to go to a place of cognitive behavioral therapy where I was thinking through, okay, right now this argument is activating my amygdala. I need mm -hmm. to step back. And, mm -hmm. it, and I found I went through a process of disassociating myself with my own emotions. Mm. Um, and I found that I was starting to make fun of them most of the time or uh, make fun of other people's emotions. Like I found emotions led me wrong in the past, caused caused me to be self-centered and everything else. And that I went to a degree where I was getting rid of emotion as a way of controlling my life and making myself a better person. And I think I'm on the journey right now of starting to maybe come back to <laughs> allowing emotion and also trying to find a way of emotionally embracing uh, what I believe in that way uh, and allowing that to affect it to some degree. Mm. But, can't really fully articulate that yet at all but working on it so <laughs> me too yeah well maybe your book will help me uh articulate and, and find that path a little bit once it comes out um number two any advice for someone who is de in reconstructing and strongly dislikes associating with groups like churches i personally i get really itchy uh, when I get around a group, I don't know if you've ever heard George Carlin's take on how he loves individuals but hates groups. As they get into groups, they start to develop armbands, and then they start to go around at night, you know, uh, collecting people and stuff. And to me, I've always had that um, that itchiness with group think and group identity and everything else that uh, it gives me some predisposition against religion and belief in that manner. Um, how do you DN reconstruct from your experience um, while being standoffish towards group dynamics? I don't look to any one group to be the end all be all fulfillment of human potential. Hmm. So I'm still a church person. Mm hmm. Uh, when what I look for in a church group, and by that I mean a church, a group of people who, who compose a church, uh, not a small group within a church, is table fellowship, the Eucharist, mm -hmm. and some form of communal spiritual expression, because I enjoy it, and some means of uh, collectively applying some shared faith value in the world. So uh, for me to like, like a church or want to go to a church, there needs to be the Eucharist. There needs to be ideally for me at this point in my life, a liturgy and there needs to be uh, something that happens other than a liturgical service with that community that makes the faith matter in some way. It has to, it has to make a difference in the world for good. Right. Um, and those things aren't that hard to find for me. Um, but before 
before I kind of returned to the church, I found um, great value in social grouping, like friends, real friendships. Yeah. Um, that don't have a lot of expectation other than mutual support and honesty and intimacy. Right. Um, then these last few years of my life, kind of 2013 on, I've had better, more intimate friendships than I've ever had in my life. They're fewer in number. Mm-hmm. But I have a an embarrassing wealth of people that I can be honest with, that I can be myself with, and where they can be themselves with me. And that's so key in our identity formation and our um, emotional actualization. And what I think happens a lot is people treat deconstruction and reconstruction like they're intellectual exercises. And I've just learned that there's an intellectual veneer on top of really deep issues in the emotional brain and in the body. Hmm. And that social belonging actually helps us process those things in pretty dramatic ways. I don't think someone can go through deconstruction and reconstruction without going through a pretty intensive therapy process and, and dealing with grief and dealing with um, the, 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 the manner of thinking in which we deconstruct has a name in psychology and it's intellectualization. You take something that was once very vital and meaningful and emotional for you, which was a belief about God, and then you pick it apart with your analytical brain and in doing so protect yourself from feelings of grief and feelings of loss and feelings of betrayal. And so I think a lot of times when people say, I can't really plug back into community, often what I hear based on my experience and what I've researched is I, my brain especially my intellectual brain is working very hard to protect me from some feelings that feel dangerous. In fact, they might feel so dangerous that I don't ever feel them. Mm -hmm. Right. When people say I never feel angry and I'm a person who says that what that generally means is I actually have some very serious trauma and therefore some strong defensive strategies with anger for someone else that might be grief for someone else that might be uh, loneliness you know there's all these things and they are present in deconstruction reconstruction conversations mm. but in white protestant communities uh those feelings are always pushed to the side because in our enlightenment way we're like behold the mighty intellect mm. and if you look at it from an evolutionary perspective the intellectual brain is a hitchhiker that just got in the car five minutes ago and is trying to drive. But what I've spent the last two years learning is our emotions have profound and ancient wisdom and our life is better when we learn to accept them and relate to them and let the intellectual brain play well with them. It's not that I'm saying... We should always follow our feelings. That's not it. Yeah. No. But what I am saying is that our feelings have tremendous wisdom. And when they're silenced is when we have all these unpredictable behaviors in our life. And when we have these um, 
unexpected or, or, or we're social animals. So when we have trouble connecting with others socially, there is something underneath that. And it's almost always an emotional thing. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. In, in my own intellectualization of my being reconstruction process, I went to, I've gone to such a degree that even the idea of, um, like even like the idea of sex becomes a uh, like a weird thing. Yeah. Like the female right. gets moist and the male mm-hmm. yet and it's and I start to see a nature show of two bugs that is just like why do we write songs about this and why do we this is yeah. just you know and it, but then in the moment, you know, it's like all of that's gone and you're just experiencing that connection, you know, with your wife or whoever and it's beautiful. Uh, but the intellectualization can take that away. And that's, uh, that's just one thing I noticed myself that, that, um, like I was sitting in the bathtub watching, you might've seen it, uh, LeBron James did the barbershop thing. I think it was on HBO. And I remember sitting there, it was just after I was sick and I was exhausted and I'm watching it. And they started talking about the struggles within their community and what they experienced growing up and all this. I felt this deep sense of em- empathy all of mm-hmm. a sudden and mm-hmm. and I was like whoa emotion you know and I and just the week before or earlier that week my wife had said you know I think you're you're detaching yourself from your emotions or you're you're doing something here that's not healthy and uh it, and I, like right after that I came back downstairs and I was like I think I've detached myself from my emotion <laughs> so it's yeah. uh it's yeah. interesting. Um, it, within your answer to question two, you answered uh, question three. Aside from what criteria do you choose to find that community for church for you? What kind of uh, criteria do you do? You set a criteria, or do sure? You I want a out? woman pastor. Why is that? We've had plenty of male pastors. I'm not saying men can't be pastors. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that for now they've had their day, and an intentional course correction is important to me. Mm-hmm. I think it makes it easier to uh, confront some of the patriarchal assumptions of faith communities when a woman is the spiritual leader of a faith community. Um, so, I, and uh, I need uh, any church I'm a part of to be um, affirming of all sexual orientations and gender identities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by that, I mean they can be members. They can be baptized they can be married they can serve as clergy they can do anything in the church anyone else can do um and i need to hear from church leaders i need them to speak out on pressing issues of justice in our day that does not mean i need to agree with them politically what it means is we must agree that action is necessary and that people of faith have a role to play. And there needs to be the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, I've wondered if um, historically uh, church leadership has been male. Uh, but I wonder with the evolution of societies and religion, um, if the point we've come to in uh, first world societies um if the, the ideas of spirituality become more relational and if speaking in generalities, again, 
women are generally more skilled in relational roles as, as a general thing. And to me, it seems like there's more of a need for that type of ministering uh, when it comes to relating to spiritual issues at this point in time. I don't know. I'd agree. Yeah. I think it's important for men to see how women relate in community and to start to emulate that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's why I like a, one of the many reasons I prefer my pastors to be women. The pastor actually where my wife still goes is a woman and she's doing a great job. Friend of, or mother of my close friend. And it's funny, as soon as she took over the church is when I left and I always felt bad about that, mm. but mm. wasn't anything to do with her. But yeah. Uh, now on to the hardball questions. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, a, a formative thing for me has been um, a good friend of mine who I always looked up to uh, essentially lost his faith and uh, ran his life into the ground in some ways. And it was, it was someone that I really looked up to. And uh, I still very much look up to that person, but it was a moment of, you can't put people on a pedestal. Everyone's human. Um, and losing that was a moment of like, all right, I need to stand on my own to a degree. And your book of having the experience on the beach um, and seeing, you know, the reality stretch thin and seeing the vastness of the universe. I'm not recalling it exactly. But to me, that was uh, at the point in time when I when you read the book to me, <laughs> um, it, it was some glimmer of hope, like maybe there is still a God or something out there at that point in my deconstruction. And in in a more recent podcast, and I kind of held on to that for a while. And in a more recent uh, podcast you had done, uh, you had mentioned that you can see apparitions at night when you go to the bathroom. And mm -hmm. it's, uh, can you please get out of my way? So I'm going to walk through you and, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it that for me was a, a point of... Um, these don't add up and how in my mind uh in your mind how do those how do those make sense or what do those say to you between those what two? do what say well the 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 ability to to feel that god was speaking to you in some way or an idea of god was speaking sure. to you on the beach but then to have an apparition in the hallway when you're going to the bathroom that doesn't mean anything i see um, and you can take a pass on that. And we can no, edit no, it's out. fine. <laughs> All human experiences are hallucinations. Yeah, every everything you see is something your brain is manufacturing using mostly sensory data, but not entirely. Mm -hmm. Um, when you look at if you could imagine seeing the raw feed that comes out of your eyes, it's so dramatically different from your field of view. Yeah, can they visualize that? Or... You, you could, knowing the features of an eye. Um, and on significant enough doses on sub-substances. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> you can turn all that software off as well. So... Um, Babies are in a, a perpetual psychedelic right. 
uh, I mean, they're just sitting world. there looking at the, right like, because their their this? brains haven't learned to to filter and create coherence out of the chaotic information our senses create. So, um, of course, we can see wondrous things. I'm a person who has suffered from pretty tremendous and repeat traumatic experiences. And that means I'm a person who has dissociative tendencies. Can you explain dissociative to me and dissociative? A dissociative tendency is, is a aptitude to have dissociative experiences and dissociation is, um, a way of going into a safe place in your mind in times of danger. Uh, gotcha. Okay. So I, I'm never frightened in horror movies or really at all. It's very difficult, if not impossible to startle me because instead of starting like everyone else, I dissociate and oh, then come wow. back slowly. What we found in research is people who have dissociative tendencies are much more likely to have mystical experiences so we see the great prophets and teachers from religion have often undergone tremendous suffering their brains as a defensive capacity uh they have this ability to separate from reality to make um a different interpretation of what's in the mind and what's beyond it so I have no doubt that the fact that I'm a person with CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder, is very related to the fact that I saw a light on a beach. Hmm. Now, does that mean my experience with God was completely fabricated by my brain? That's entirely plausible. But could it mean Anything also that possible. there's a reason that faith traditions uh, often describe God as being, especially with those who have suffered? I don't know. I don't care to reconcile that or, or work through it. I know that when I approach that light on the beach, it provides tremendous meaning in my life and a strength to keep going each day and an inspiration to love each others deeply and serve them well. Hmm. The idea that my house is haunted doesn't do those things. <laughs> so I just say, oh, look, my brain's doing a funny thing. Wow. Um, and I don't trouble myself with it at all. Um, we have to choose what experiences we invest in and which ones we do not. That doesn't mean I'm like in some way closed off to the idea of spiritual things, but I find them, you know, probably about as, or, or spirits, not spiritual things, like literal right, right. apparitions of, of humans who have lived. I just don't, I find that even less likely than the notion of God as a being. So I, I think you had done a podcast with Ryan Bell. I think it was the first place that I had, um, that I came across your work. He used to be an Adventist pastor and that's my background is Adventism as well. Uh, and you had described yourself as a, a materialist mystic. And do do you still, uh, find yourself processing the world in that way absolutely yes um more than anything else i spiritually i am a mystic and epistemologically i am a materialist and how would you how would you define mystic a mystic is a person who 
says the essence of what is spiritual and divine cannot be accurately described with language. It can only be known and experienced. Mm. I like that. Um, I did not come up with it. <laughs> you could trademark it. Um, all right. So uh, with your recent explorations into altered states of consciousness through both meditation and chemical means, what's yes. uh, your thoughts? What are your thoughts on consciousness and where thoughts come from? Oh, my. Oh, my. The idea I'd be willing to defend would be that consciousness is... Um, what I'd be willing to defend is the notion that consciousness is a feedback loop wherein something that's modeling reality becomes aware of itself. Okay, say that again slower. It's easier. <laughs> it's, 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 it's Michio Kaku's idea of a physicist's oh. notion of consciousness. So in that way, the most primitive form of consciousness would be a thermostat. Right. Thermostat knows the temperature of the room. It can turn the air on. When it cools down, it can turn it off. It can respond to the changes in the environment it's made. So as you add more loops, you get more sophisticated consciousness, all right. the way up to sentience, where sentience is a consciousness that's aware of itself. Right. Um, where do thoughts come from? The physical phenomena that enable that modeling and loops. So in our case, primarily neurons. Um, I had an experience while attempting to meditate. Um, and from, from what I've heard you talk about, you're pretty experienced with it and uh, maybe more easily equipped to do it with was it dissociative mm -hmm. tendencies? Like I, both myself, my dad, and my son all seem to have very highly active thoughts just constantly just going. Um, but one morning I was trying to just quiet my mind. I get up usually around five and that's the only time I can be alone and, and think. And the window was cracked and there was a cricket outside. Normally every other morning I'm very uh, sensitive to noise. And like the, the mechanical noise of the refrigerator or whatever else, just I can't like, uh, there's a little crickets out there and he's just. And normally I feel like I'm, I don't know what I would call my observer is plastered against kind of the uh, Times Square. You know how they just have these images just flying around the outside of buildings. Well, imagine a ring around you, but your conscious observer is plastered out against that and that's how i feel most of the time is that i'm just plastered on this thing and there's thoughts flying everywhere i'm trying to stop the thoughts but dealing with what they call monkey brain i guess mm -hmm. but this cricket all of a sudden's going and it's like watching fire it kind of starts to put your brain into alpha waves i think um but this little cricket's going and then all of a sudden i just peel off of that kind of jumbotron kind of thing and right into the middle and i'm not separated from the thoughts i still see them out there going around but i'm not caught in them and it was just this moment where i was fully conscious fully aware and it, it was just all of a sudden a disconnected piece where i just i came into the center of that and all that noise was out there and it's the first time 
as someone who was raised in a very conservative Christian tradition, I thought about my observer consciousness and my thoughts are two separate things. Mm -hmm. And that was such a weird moment and thought for me. Um, have you had any similar experience with, I mean, you were raised in a similar conservative Christian Baptist background. Uh, did you ever have moments like that where you started to come across? That's my whole life though. I mean, ever since yeah. I was a very young child, I would turn my thoughts on themselves and, and try to figure out how everything was working in mm. my mind. Wow. So I had, I had experiences like that when I was very young, probably nine. Hmm. Um, yeah. Well, and, experiences like that where you felt like you could be separated. I would call from what you're screen. describing as presence. Yeah. Simply being truly present in the moment. Hmm. Interesting. Um, do you think uh, being on the autism spectrum uh, has given you uh, the incredible value that you are in some way, the incredible value that you are to observe and process the, the human experience and animal that we all are, but it seems like you have the, this autistic, uh, on some spectrum, uh, soup that you live in that is your experience, but also this incredible intelligence that you're able to be somewhat disconnected or whatever, but process that and translate it into something that the rest of us understand in some mm. way. Because I've often thought like, how's this guy making sense of all this where I feel like I'm just kind of tumbling down a river in the rapids of uh, knowledge and feelings at the same time and everything else. And I can't even separate, you know, thoughts from consciousness. And I mean, have you well, ever... Thoughts are a part of consciousness for sure. But where do they come from and why can't I shut them off? Well, let's, let's, uh, I think... Let's step away from the theoretical for a moment. Okay. And let's sit in the practical. Right. You can't shut your thoughts off. And trying to is an exercise in futility. If we think structurally, your thoughts are you becoming aware of different systems in your brain communicating. Okay. Okay. Um... And the part of your brain that is aware, the observer, as, as you, right. as you, and I also often call it, the little patch of tissue behind your forehead. Well, thoughts are happening all over the brain. Feelings are happening all over the brain. And you just got this little tissue watching. Is that the pineal? That would be the prefrontal cortex. Right. Yeah. So your, your observer right. lives up there. Um, your another key component of your consciousness is your ability to experience sensation. And that happens in a very different part of your neocortex, the outermost layer of the brain. That happens primarily in the um, parietal lobe of your brain. So when we're present, we're creating communication and, and, and relation between the observing part of the brain 
and the experiencing part. Thoughts can still happen, but the point is, in most minds, thoughts are a survival mechanism, and there's no penalty for having thoughts running constantly, especially if they help you survive. Right. The difficulty is our rampant thoughts tend to fill us with anxiety and distraction. And so that when we're having a moment in our lives that we enjoy and anticipate, we're unable to do so because all these thoughts are flying around trying to keep us alive. So don't try to turn your thoughts off. Simply try to be aware that you are having them. So that moment when you went from the wide view of Times Square to centered in the middle of it, watching it, you were doing that. You became aware, wow, these are my thoughts. Just listen to them. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that marvelous? And actually, if I just listen, I'll find all kinds of things. I'll find the weight of my body in the chair. I'll find the warmth of the chair against the back of my legs. I can feel the pressure of my feet on the ground. Gosh, I can feel an ache in my ankle from where I twisted it years ago, but it's kind of a chilly day. And we, in our presence, unite our observer and our, our sensory awareness in, in a way that is freeing. So the more often you do that, you'll find you can influence with intention where your observer focuses. And so, instead of focusing on your thoughts, you focus on your breath or the sound of a refrigerator that would usually drive you crazy. And you focus on the fridge sound and, and the fact that it makes you crazy and go, huh, what? It is. You don't even go, why? You simply say it is. And often, this focus creates relief. You might find that right. as you listen with intention, your anxiety drops. One thing that happens to me when I meditate, I get an itch. I never scratch the itch. I rest my attention on it until it fades away in these really marvelous and interesting ways. I have an itch on the back of my head right now that I'm simply putting my attention on and I can kind of feel the sharpness of the itch fuzz out and it becomes a different sensation and then fades over time. When you are doing this, when you're resting your attention on something, the monkey brain, the the, the train of thoughts, as uh, I sometimes think of it, will barge through the space and you go wow i had a thought high thought and you just let it on its way and you return your attention to wherever it was you wanted your attention to rest a breath your own breath is a particularly easy thing because it's always there and there's a lot of sensation associated with it right and over time the practice of acknowledging and dismissing your thoughts actually means you have fewer and fewer of them until you can sit sometimes for 30 minutes or 60 minutes and never be disturbed by a thought. You can simply be present in the moment. Hmm. But you are training your brain in the same way you train a dog or a horse. It's the, you cannot teach your dog anything with a lecture. Your dog only learns through experience. And that's also true for the vast majority of your own brain. Why do you, why do you think it is that uh, the more conservative Christian religions so strongly, well, in my experience, so strongly avoid things like meditation? 
I mean, do, does the Baptist tradition uh, kind of yeah, think of it? As absolutely. A I, 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 you know, I don't even know. Yeah. I don't even know. I, uh, I had an experience of um, being at a therapist's office and uh, she was like, why don't we listen to this Scottish man, um, you know, uh, you know, and walking, it'll be a calming exercise. And even that was on the border of too much for some of the people mm -hmm. I was with at the time. And we couldn't go back to that therapist anymore because I'm sure, but yeah. yeah. Um, so social taboos are, are powerful motivators there. I'm finding as, as I'm starting to reconsider, uh, emotions and, uh, important social boundaries that there's definitely truth in some of them and it's it's a process of discerning which ones do and don't have value and yeah mm. um okay so this one this question borders on science which you're the man of uh and philosophy and it, and it goes into the uh free will determinism thing i still don't understand compatibilism um, <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me, but I, I've been working with this idea. This is where I found, um, this is where I found the conversation of belief in atheism to really intersect was a lot at this idea of free will and, you know, do we have it or are we just a collection of deterministic reactions? Um, and in my head, I came up for some reason with this thought experiment and if um if we were someday oh i just turned off in my head am i back on yeah you should be good all right in if we were able to someday uh actually be able to do a dyson sphere the you know highest power of the sun sure with the thing and then make a empower a supercomputer with it uh quantum or normal don't know i don't know that enough about computers i've heard you discuss the limits of quantum computing and it all went right over my head <laughs> um but uh if we're able to make it i can't even conceive of a computer that would require the power of the sun but i'll i'll, I'll, well, I'll let's along. let's per, let's go sci-fi and pretend they've made it and they can map every bit of matter and anything in the universe with it and you can then enter into this computer if we are this is assuming we're deterministic we can enter into the computer. Well, what if we do this? And then it can, since everything is deterministic, it can spit back out. This is what will happen. And so at that point, if we're deterministic, what, what we've created is a uh, future scene feedback loop that we can enter possibilities into and then get feedback from to determine if that would be a good or bad thing to do if we are truly deterministic to make that possible. The, the, the interesting thing to me at that point, if you know all of this is not just ridiculous mumbo jumbo that I'm coming up with in my head and way off, the interesting thing is at that point, we've essentially made what we would consider to be kind of a God telling us what to do and what not to do. And with human nature, we would probably take that information and then go and try and control other people with it to tell them, you know, the great feedback loop has told us we need to do this, behave in that way and this that, and the other to have the best eventual outcome if we're deterministic. Then to me, that thought experience, the feedback on that that I get is that, well, 
I already have a supercomputer really in my own head running a feedback loop just with kind of the power of a flashlight seeing into the computer that if you know if I decide to jump out of this chair and look like I'm about to attack you from this side you're probably going to go over there and it's going to be an odd situation and let's not do that you know it we have a feedback loop predicting the future constantly in our head with choices that we're making and it's it's just an odd um conflict in there to push back on determinism actually being a thing have i made any sense at all you have made sense i think there's a couple of um assumptions in that train okay that lessen the power of the critique okay this is this is pretty much the only place i could get this kind of feedback um Just because reality is deterministic mm-hmm. does not mean we would ever be able to model reality computationally. But if it, even if everything is deterministic? The problem is the data set of everything mm-hmm. is not simply enormous. In our current cosmological understanding, it is in fact infinite so a supercomputer powered Uh, by our sun is so woefully underpowered in storage capacity and computational capacity to even run a simulation of itself right because of quantum dynamics and the sheer number of quantum phenomena there are in my pinky nail um we are unaware, number one, our, we are, have an insufficient understanding of reality on its most fundamental levels to accurately model anything. Two, even if we had a better understanding, there may be no more efficient way to compute physical phenomena than the physical phenomena itself. So you can't even model a full physical set a, a, a fixed set of say the components of a computer on a computer itself because you can't get free information we don't know of any math that basically lets you compress the amount of data of a system into the system itself so yes your brain has this really specialized hardware called an orbitofrontal cortex that does constantly make predictions about the future but it's doing that with a very summarized model and that all the reason that that hardware is still there is because it's right enough to keep us alive. But your orbital frontex is is wrong constantly, and almost any time you use your intuition to try to tell you about physics or economics right. or how many calories you've eaten in a day, you are dead wrong. So simulations have limits, hmm. even in a deterministic universe. So sort of what's interesting to me about the free will versus determinism debate is like the implications on our daily living is infinitesimal because even a deterministic quantum reality to a human being is indecipherable from free will. I guess it I guess it just gets at the the deeper question of if everything is deterministic it 
it seems like to me the the result is that there is nothing other than matter and that that eliminates any possibility of a ghost or soul in the machine. There are definitely things other than matter. We know that. Photons have no mass. Right. Um, All the virtual force-carrying particles aren't matter. That doesn't mean they don't exist. I'm already underwater here. (laughs) (laughs) To say things are material is not to say everything is physical and tangible. It does mean everything is measurable, at least by indirect means. Um, so that the technical assumptions on my, on my thought experiment are not possible. So what so often happens because human, human brains have a limited capacity. The reason we suck as a species in answering these questions, people don't know enough about all the necessary disciplines. Philosophers are almost comically ill-equipped with their understanding of physics Mm. And physicists are comically ill-equipped with their understandings of philosophy. Mm. Comically. Uh, So when we start to dig in these questions, we build these thought experiments or these mathematical models, uh, which even the things that humanity knows today, you can tear all apart, which is why I'm such a nihilist, right? Like, there's only so much a person can know. And which is also why I'm a pragmatist. Like, on free will versus determinism... I'm like, okay, if we have free will, if we, like, what implications on daily life? And the chance that we live in a deterministic universe, the main thing it tells me is I should be compassionate with people. Right. And that my notions of criminal justice should be less, less pinned to moral responsibility and more societal benefit and rehabilitation. Right? Like, and yeah. the, the problem is whether or not the universe is deterministic. Me saying I care less about moral failings and more about good for society just happens to have like better outcomes for people. <laughs> and that's what I always strive for in my way of living and what I know. I am, I'm very outcome focused. Right. I don't mind if I have a bad set of assumptions that create good outcomes. Like, what if climate change isn't caused by people? And we just make changes that make the air cleaner and the water cleaner. Fantastic. Yeah, it was. So what? The assumption was wrong. Right. Um, Yeah, let's make it good outcomes for people as much as we can. Hmm. Um, How does materialism play into your take on truth? Uh, I have this. I have an analogy that I think I won't be able to have. Uh, taken apart <laughs> um if if i i would say i am far better at taking these apart than putting them together <laughs> <laughs> i'm i am by nature a critic myself um if i stand an inch from a jumbotron yes i'm gonna see the red green and blue dots yes and that will be the material truth of that but if i stand back 300 feet I'll see that two people are getting engaged and I'll see the meaning of it. Sure. So is the mystic 300 feet back looking at all the data points and making sense of them, but the materialist is standing an inch from the drumbotron? Yes. But the mystic also acknowledges 
that the same 300 foot view can inspire different perspectives, which are equally valid. So if the jumbotron is projecting an image where some people see two faces and other people see a vase, I'm not right. going to fight about, is it a face or a vase? Oh, I'm going to say at the fundamental level, it's pixels. <laughs> and we know what the pixels are doing. All right. Um, in your opinion, is there any danger to embracing logic and reason too deeply? Uh, the ancient Egyptians supposedly felt that logic and reason could strip you of meaning if embraced too wholeheartedly. I've personally found that to be true. I just remember what logic and reason are here for. Survival mechanisms, mm -hmm. not truth-seeking mechanisms. Aren't they to some degree, though? Nothing about your logical capacity uh -huh. is designed to help you seek truth. Truth is handy if it helps you survive. But your brain doesn't give two shits about what is true. Your brain cares very much about what will help you survive. Which means, is that water? Is it poisonous? Those are truths you want to nail. <laughs> right? Those are things that your brain is very good at. Very, very, very good at. And a five-year-old is really good at telling what is water and does it stink, right? Right. But a survival thing for a social primate is social acceptance. So most of our beliefs stem from social acceptance. They have nothing. I think the whole thing about mm. truth and logic and reason is just people deceiving themselves about what their brains do. Um, it appears our rational capacity comes to rationalize our feelings to convince other people to go along with our point of view. Or when we lose to rationalize why we assent to the other viewpoint. Lens one for the human brain, survival, food, water, safety, shelter. Lens two, social. Social is survival for us. And a lot of the mysteries we see about human beliefs and behavior are much less mysterious if we use those lenses. Hmm. It yeah. is true for really? scientists as well. Oh yeah, it, to me it's interesting the 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 degree of um, protective culture that now surrounds uh, evolution in the same way that you know protective culture surrounds religion. Yeah, because it because they're just attack 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 attack. And there was an unbelievable episode where they kind of delved into that a little bit at this, it was maybe a symposium on evolution or something, mm. but they started talking about like, all right, we don't talk about this up front, but we're going to talk about this behind closed doors as here's a problem with our current model of evolution that we need to work on. Yes. It was behind doors. Yes. Not up front. Yeah. You know? Which is a tip to be pragmatic because one of the problems with science is when people admit a weakness with the model, the public goes, ha ha, it's wrong. It's like, whoa. Well, you see what I mean? So I can, yeah, I can yeah. sympathize with that. But absolutely. And that concerns me less than um, some more fundamental problems in the sciences, in my opinion, is the bias against publishing negative results, the ways we don't fund someone doing 
a reproduction of an existing result. Right. We have systemic biases and incentives towards po publishing positive results, which means setting a set of criteria you think is going to work before you run the experiment. And that creates huge blind spots in the sciences. There is no means of human knowing that isn't riddled with errors. And that's really frustrating if you view the world as like truth and logic and reason. And really, really obvious is if you view human intelligence as a mechanism for survival. Because we are surviving. For the architectural goals of human intelligence, our intelligence is doing an exceptional job. What do you think our psyche does when it realizes we're not having a problem surviving anymore? For me, it's very liberating. Now, I want to be clear. Some people do have problems surviving. Oh, absolutely. But I think... As in... a species overall, we're doing well. Yeah. An incredible number of individuals in our species are struggling in a way that is unjust, unfair, and unconscionable. But I, I think... There's something to a, a, uh, an existence of a person who uh, wants and needs for not much. And there's something about the psyche of the, that person at a point within a culture, subset of a culture like that, that then turns that, uh, that search for meaning and truth becomes more important. Like what is actually true? I think the mind can start to focus on real, I mean, what is real truth? Mm -hmm. I think there's something to that. And I think that's where I think spiral dynamics uh, plays into that to a degree as you get more along that there's a different search for that. If you've heard me say spiral dynamics is Western centric, the reason I say that is because I don't think that's the inevitable curve that happens when people's resource needs are met. I think mm -hmm. that is a possible and often prescribed destination. I am finding that with intention and with having a social community that is more inclusive, uh, when my resource needs are met, I wonder much less about what is true and much more about what I can do to make sure other people's basic needs are met. Mm. And oddly enough, in that search, I found much more meaning than I ever did seeking truth for truth's sake. So that's, that's really interesting to me. Um, and I have a sneaking suspicion with myself as soon as I actually start doing that, everything that I'm struggling with will fall away. That was my experience. Everything I was struggling with fell away when I went all in on meaningfully addressing the suffering of others hmm. without ignoring the fact that I am also a person who has physical and emotional needs. Right. Right. Um, truth seems to be infinitely, <laughs> sorry, truth. <laughs> truth seems to be infinitely reducible. I have an analogy in my head where if, truth is on the horizon by the time you get to that horizon it's just moved beyond you and it seems that truth is infinitely uh reducible um do you believe anything is actually true or is there 
only relative truths. I believe there's there's possibly verging on probably real truth. I don't think a human brain can build a high fidelity enough model to know real truth. I think because we can only work with depending on the person three to and you know what time of day and how old they are three to maybe eight working chunks of memory at a time. Hmm. We, we can't even know ourselves. Yeah. So we're certainly not going to understand fundamental aspects of reality. Now, maybe in a collective search working together, we can piece together an, a more and more accurate view over time and zoom in on little moments and catch glimpses. But, uh, I don't think, I don't think anyone has ever fundamentally understood so much as an electron. Um, another kind of weird one. If I imagine shrinking myself down to the size of the smallest form of anything we could imagine and would be able to stand amongst the collection of these smallest things, whatever the matter of our, or the you know, substance of our existence is made of, as a thought experiment, if I can imagine that, I stand amongst them and I think what causes these things to organize themselves into larger organizations that have the desire to live, love, and, you know, not cease being conscious. How, how do you, how do you picture that? Or do you ever consider that? And like, where does desire, where does because I've often run this across the idea of people being afraid of artificial intelligence, like it would have a nefarious side to it. Well, it, it would only have what we programmed into it. What's been programmed into us using these most basic bits of whatever we're made of that make us have desires, love, and all that? Well, first of all, if you shrunk down to quantum level, you would turn into a singularity and consume a lot of matter and then through Hawking radiation evaporate. But just as a thought experiment, not for real. If <laughs> you fix that problem, the second problem would be is that you would not be able to see or observe anything because the receptors in your body systems would now be far too small you couldn't, your eyes would receive no photons. You would, you're, but more as a philosophical question. If you're saying, yeah, why do those things do what they do? Yeah. I mean, do we have any, do we have any inkling why matter arranges itself into what ultimately is the highest form of consciousness? Gravitation, electromagnetism, the strong and weak nuclear forces. And we still the Higgs have field. no clue where those come from. Like, I guess, why do they have to come from anywhere? I guess I just want to know. <laughs> yeah, I, I sometimes think we project our need to know onto the universe. And our need to know emerges from our biology. Mm. To secure our position. And yeah, the better, the better we understand the world, our species has done quite well 
understanding enough about the world to throw things. I mean, what really separated us from the other animals was being able to throw things, rocks and sharpen sticks. Right. Suddenly we're like the apex, 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 apex of apex predators, even though like... When's the last time you watched 2001 Space Odyssey? It's been a while. I just watched that it's last week film. for the first time. And oh my that gosh. moment of, look what I can do with yes. this. And I was like, ooh, as... You know, coming from my background to watch that, it was a little bit of a, hmm, yeah. So I think more our need to know why comes from that. An idea of we need to know so we can. Not that quantum phenomenon needs a why. See, I think we, I think we form our religions in the same manner. Like, well, we need to know why. We need to know what. Absolutely. So we can package it up, put it on the shelf. So I can use that later. There's a part of your brain that looks for faces. Mine's broken, but most people have it. And if you see like a knot of wood that looks like it has eyes and a nose and a mouth, you go, oh, a face. Okay. That is a, a biological function that searches for intelligence in the world. Because you need a different reaction to an animal you've never seen than a rock to survive. So right, right, right. that searching... For agency in the world is a survival feature Interesting. that we then project onto the physical universe, which I suspect, but do not know, simply is what it is. Well, again, do you think that part of your brain that's not doing that has gifted you something to be able to see more of the, um, to see behind the curtain more? I don't know. I don't know that I see behind the curtain at all. Oh, I just come on. What you do is what you do and what you see is so vastly special compared to uh, the people normally going about their day. I think everybody has a special and unique vantage point on reality. Well, of course, but I mean, you've I mean, I'm good at talking. Don't disregard <laughs> imposter syndrome. You know, I mean, you. No, I think you're right. I think my viewpoint is special and wonderful and unique. I just also think that about everyone's. I think the this right, but I think you specifically have a different skill set given your makeup that allows you to see things differently. That that pushes you into yeah, and that. I'm great profit. at talking about shit. <laughs> Just great at talking about shit. But you world class things. talking about shit. But you perceive things like when I when I came in here today. I mean, you spent a good, and I'm in no way offended by it, but you spent like a good sixty seconds, to like two minutes, of not even acknowledging that someone had entered the room. Yeah, because you was were my focused first, on a task. It was my first time walking in this room, being arranged this way. <laughs> and you were getting your. I'm space. autistic. That's a big deal. Oh. We've okay. been preparing me for this moment oh, for uh, weeks that oh, this studio would be rearranged. Everything's in a new place and you're getting to know. And That's the only way I could greet you or do this conversation. Interesting. Interesting. Huh. Huh. Well, let me just reiterate that. Which, by the way, this you... is my new chair. Yeah. This is where I will sit from now on in this room. <laughs> where were you before? Uh, well, this table was over there, yeah, and my back was toward that wall. Yeah, I do better if my back's toward a wall, huh? Um, let's see. So All yeah, right. but yeah, that's weird. And I, you know, 
I had some vague notion that you were here and I should talk to you, but I simply had to like go through some things first before I could accommodate that information. Okay. So my, my wife and I did a podcast a while ago around our difficulty if she's remained very conservative and very faith oriented. And I've, uh, you know, departed from that to a large degree. Mm-hmm. And she listened to the one that you had just done with the honey badger. Mm-hmm. And, you know, much of the stuff that she was describing, she says, I see about 25% of that in you, Trent. Uh, there's, there's a large, de- yeah, I, I, you know, if, if you're autism on, is a spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. I would say many like people are just on, on the other side of the fence probably, but no, there's a part of that spectrum that we've cordoned off with diagnostic criteria mm-hmm. and that's called autism spectrum disorder which is distinct from being on the autism spectrum at all right autism spectrum disorder is a subset of the autism spectrum okay yeah um i i chronically would never introduce my wife anywhere we went because I don't, I always just kind of assumed like, where you're so much more social, why don't you do it? You know, I'm I don't know who I know knows each other. Oh. So my problem is like, if I start introducing people, I will introduce people who already know each other oh, and right. know each other well, who I've been around. Because I don't, my brain doesn't track that extra degree of social web. Interesting. I know who I know, and that's it. So now I, I've made a habit of just introducing everyone all the time. That's yeah. I try and do that. If I do that, then it will be embarrassing because I will. Plus, I'm face blind. Yeah. So if I see people. So if, a, if we met again like a week from now, do you recognize? I didn't recognize you when you walked up. Didn't. I saw your, and I've seen your face many times. I wouldn't say a lot, but I mean. Enough. More, more than most people. Yeah. And. I had to do like, I was like, that's probably Trent. Well, I haven't shaved in a long time and I just did get new glasses. I'm wearing a hat. So. Right. Which for someone who's face blind, you, you're a, a different person. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. So because of the things I recognize people with, their hair, uh, their facial hair, their glasses, you changed. Yeah. So I was like, huh, that could be Trent. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll solve that mystery after I get done setting up the right. room. All right. Interesting. Um, okay. So to get back a little more sciencey, is there, uh, or science, science fictiony, uh, is there any way to test if I'm the single only consciousness in my reality or that this might just be a simulation? I don't believe so. It's gotta be a little hook in there that a genius could come up with. I'm, so I'm like, aware of none. <laughs> yeah. That's the Elon Musk, uh, did you watch the podcast with Joe Rogan and Elon Musk? Segments of it. I haven't, I haven't seen the whole thing. It was interesting. The way he described the, the amount of thoughts that he deals with uh, felt familiar, but far worse than mine. Seems like he suffers with a highway of just endless. Um, Poor guy. Last question. Uh, as you look back at your process of deconstruction, what do you wish you might have done differently, if anything? Been kinder to myself. Mm-hmm. Been honest sooner. Honest in what way? 
not hide that my beliefs were changing from other people. And I would have left my evangelical church a lot sooner. Really? For myself and for them. Hmm. Yeah. That's not to say I regret anything that happened, but with hindsight, if I did it again, that's what I would do differently. You you find a lot of um, fulfillment and identity through socialization like that. Of course. Yeah. Everyone does. Nope. <laughs> like in a large group setting like that for me, there's nothing oh, worse for me than to, to go to uh, a group meeting where everyone thinks the same and I can't question. That for me is just... Oh, I'm a nonconformist. That drives me crazy too. So, so but how do you deal... Like where, where is the, the, the fulfillment and joy that you find in church attendance? The Eucharist. What is the Eucharist? That's a term I'm not completely familiar with. The table, the good gift, the Lord's Supper, the, the bread and the wine. Do so, this in remembrance of me. That's the Eucharist. All right. These, yeah. So the, the, everyone being there. Well, I guess you're you're part of a church now that's far, far more. Yeah, Sally can believe this, Bob can believe that, but the idea is that we're coming together and searching together. Yeah, right. And in the Adventist tradition, it is so so truth centric that the the an interesting realization that I had was that. I generally found that if you asked an Adventist why they were Adventist, and this is a horrible thing to just put on everyone, but it was my experience that if you asked an Adventist why they were Adventist, it would be because it has the truth. Yes. Not because it feeds my soul. That would be somewhere down the line because you knew you should say that, but it was because the search for truth and and that was just nailed down. And something within me that I'm still struggling with, is bucking against that and trying to, to yeah. find where that that middle line is between all of that. So, yeah. Um, That's your brain doing my, what it has done to keep you alive. Yeah, I, I feel like I was just every week itching, trying. I saw everyone else feeling like everyone else was pretending that they were certain about these things and like, really fully believed and had no questions where my brain was like, no, wait, what? No, don't. I always had the analogy in my head of, um, a truth gun that if you put your head up to it and you weren't telling the truth, it would go off. Would I put my head up to that and say, yes, I believe there's a God. No, I would have never done that. Cause I don't, I don't know if I'm telling the truth there. And for the longest time, I didn't really understand the difference between knowing and believing. And that's, mm. And, and that was the hardest thing for me because in the culture that I came from, everyone knew it wasn't like belief. It, it's the same thing as knowing it seemed like we're certain about these things. And you ask people and they'll say, we're certain about this. Hmm. Well, then where's faith lie? The faith isn't, you don't need faith if you have certainty. Why these don't mesh. Yeah. And so that whole thing, that whole community of how that works is very, very difficult for me to understand and i haven't been able to remove myself from that completely because all of my family is still within that my children ex- 
experience a lot of stress and anxiety for their father because he's not part of that anymore. Mm. It's very difficult for them, uh, very difficult for my wife, uh, but that all permeating just truth and all the backflips that they do to um, prove that truth is a, a very difficult thing to back away from and say, I'm embracing more so the principles of love that Christ uh, embodied. Mm -hmm. I, that's like almost um, sacrilege in that community, which mm -hmm. sounds so off mm. and would be so offensive for an Adventist to hear, but is, is my experience. And, and I don't still quite know how to handle that and what to do with it because my children are still deeply in it. And uh, my wife still very much mm. fully is em embracing that so mm -hmm. um appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me um really appreciate everything you're doing thanks for your time and yeah thanks so much thanks trent